From 11FS, I'm Laura Watkins and this is Fintech Insider News, live from the 11FS offices in London. Today we bring you Deutsche Bank's job cull, the biggest since Lehman Brothers in 2008, Fintech is the new normal, and Utah is the latest US state to start a sandbox. They're not just for toddlers. All this and more on today's show. Welcome to episode 339 of Fintech Insider. I'm Laura Watkins, and I'm joined by my colleague and co-host, Simon Taylor. How's it going, Simon? It is going. My goodness, there's a lot of fintech news this week. We've got an amazing set of guests with us. I'm very excited. In spite of a bit of a hangover, which I blame David for entirely, um, David Breer, you know where you are. I blame David too. That's why I'm hosting in here. <laughs> <laughs> David and his hangover. But hangovers aside, fintech never sleeps, so let's, uh, let's crack on with this one, shall we? Absolutely. So as always, we're not alone. Uh, we're joined by some awesome guests. And making their new show debut, we have Jonathan Keeling, Partnerships Director at Crowdcube. How's it going? Very well, thanks. Thanks for having me. You are welcome. And uh, next up, we have Alistair Thompson, Head of Business Development at TransferWise. How are you doing? Hi, very well, thank you. My brother always told me I've got a face for radio, and now it's come true. <laughs> <laughs> a face for podcasts. <laughs> ah, but this podcast has video, so... I'm in trouble with it. <laughs> uh, Ishan Mali, CEO of Trussell. How are you doing? Very good. Very happy to be here. Excellent. And finally, last but not least, uh, Simon Rabin, CEO of Chip. How are you? I'm very well, thanks. How are you? Awesome. All right. Welcome to the show. Great to have you with us. Let's get started. Um, so the first story today comes from the FT, and that's Deutsche Bank braced for severe cull as investment bank head quits. Uh, so Germany's biggest lender is poised to slash 20,000 jobs and shed 50 billion euros of assets. Um, and the first casualty of that was their banking chief, Garth Ritchie, who resigned last Friday ahead of the restructuring that will cull these 20,000 jobs. Um, and this could bring about the most layoffs since the 26,000 employees when Lehman Brothers failed in September 2008, uh, which is obviously going to send a few uh, shockwaves out. Lay- uh, layoffs have already begun this week uh, in London, New York and Tokyo, as, as employees were told that their jobs were going. Um, and some staff in London were told that their passes would stop working at 11 o'clock and not to come in that day. Wow. Uh, yeah. Harsh. Your um, passes won't work. Stay away. Uh, so it's like hire slow, fire fast to a new level, isn't it? Yeah, really is. This, is. this is an interesting one, isn't it? Absolutely. So 800 people work in the share trading business in London alone, um, and the CEO described the job losses as painful but unavoidable to ensure Deutsche Bank's long-term success. This isn't a giant surprise, is it? I mean, the writing's been on the wall for Deutsche for quite some time. Their share price has been sliding for quite some time. Uh, They seem to be uh, one of those organizations that post-financial crisis just never really quite turned it around. Of the big European investment banks, you look at uh, the likes of Barclays, by contrast, have an investment bank. Sure, it's not performing as well as their retail bank, but they've kind of turned it around and it's it's making a profit. Um, The French banks, BNP Paris, Bar, Society General, they've again sort of turned it around. Uh, Deutsche Bank has really, really struggled. Uh, this, there's, a, there's a whole bunch of stats behind this one, so indulge me for a second. They're going to cu- cut their global workforce to 74,000 by 2022. I mean, that's still a lot of people. And the reorganization is going to cost the company 7.4 billion euros or $8.3 billion over the next three years. And that's also set against the context of a quarterly loss of nearly 3 billion euros. The numbers here are massive. And it's going to cost so much just to cut what they're doing. 
you'd, guys, you'd almost be better starting again with this stuff. Like, it's, it seems hard to get out of where they are. Um, but the silver lining on this one for me was a, a new uh, picture in the FT. Did anybody see this? Did you see this? The Financial Times had a picture of one of the bankers in London leaving their office, holding a bag, a little tote bag. I just said Bitcoin on it. You just said Bitcoin on it, and I was like, oh, yeah. This does feel like a Lehman Brothers moment, um, and there are rumours of a financial um, crisis and or crash coming, or at least a bear market coming. But I think this one maybe is a little bit different. I mean, what were your yeah. thoughts when you saw this? I, I think I think so. I think, you know, if you're going to have that many cuts and, and, and the losses of this scale just to actually... Um, process the cuts. Obviously, it's gonna it's gonna start triggering fears, especially when the closest parallel is 2008 and Lehman. Mm. But I think I think you're right. I think this one is pretty isolated to to Deutsche for the fact that they just haven't been able to kind of turn it around since those crises. And it's quite interesting. I was I was kind of uh, an intern in Canary Wharf when uh, in in October 2008, and I remember there was a bunch of recruiters that had turned all of the bins in Canary Wharf into CV drop-offs. <laughs> so you would have the massive Lehman building, which I think, you know, then has since kind of changed hands a few times. Um, uh, and it's interesting, just walking through Liverpool Street, everyone was outside having an Aperol. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. It, it, it's mad how, well, everybody's got a fintech job now. Um, and I guess that's the thing is 11 years since the financial crisis, things have changed quite a bit for just about everybody. Um, there's been this whole wave of fintech really arrived. Um, and some of the banks have been really scrapping to kind of keep up and uh, become what they need to become in this in this sort of fintech age. And th- this sort of looks a little bit like a cautionary tale for what happens if you don't. Well, are ex ex investment bankers the types of people that fintechs are looking to hire? I think I think Revolut like them, don't they? Pew pew. Um, but but I guess um, yeah. On that basis, though, you've seen the likes of some of the fintechs. Um, other, there are fintechs like Revolut that have hired some investment bankers, but there's there's a lot of others as well. Um, there's a really interesting one called uh, Ticker T I C R. I don't know if you've heard of these guys, ex Barclays guys. No. Uh, we covered Jar Jar on last week's show. Um, there's there's a whole bunch actually ex bankers. They um, may or may not be an ex-banker. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. So how far should I let this go before it's just where I started my the, the CEO of Trussell, one of the trendy fintechs, hipster fintechs, ex-banker, right? So this does happen. Because you've got banking on your CV doesn't mean you can't be in fintech. I, I, I mean, I have to say, Chip, we don't, we don't have any ex-bankers. And I think most of our team have come from sort of... Marketing McKinsey. backgrounds, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they're all, they're all yeah. Top how, long, how long do you have to work for a bank to be described as an ex-banker? Because I've got a year at Lloyd's. No, that doesn't count. Doesn't, it's oh, just thank, you, thank, when you came out of uni, you didn't know what to do, and you just you, you I was just give poor. it a go. Yeah. I was just poor when I came yeah. out of uni. Yeah. Yeah. You had to have eighteen months like me. <laughs> well, I agree you? with that. With it, with it in the same place. I think yeah. it, certainly more tech than fin, and certainly more marketing led, mm. and it's about customer-centric propositions, right? And right, exactly. Especially you're building a product that's that is a platform and it's and it's user centric it's not actually about the the fin and certainly, the, certainly from chips perspective. but the, the other argument there is I mean we've seen some headlines recently and I mean you mentioned Revolut which to their credit I actually think they've got their marketing and some of their product stuff in the last few weeks really really right the tone of what they did around pride and the charity donation stuff has I think been frankly phenomenal and, and credit to them uh, but the there's kind of that whole uh, conversation about do you get your tech stuff right and can you do the finances right we've seen n26 been hold up by barfin we've seen revolut uh, have some challenges itself with the regulator it the fact that big banks are in trouble doesn't mean that 
fintechs come along means no problems with the regulators ever again. Like, you've still got to get that stuff right. Mm. Culture is fundamental, right? What's the hangover from this going to look like for for Deutsche Bank from a cultural perspective? And that's equally what fintechs are doing so great, you know, from from values, mission, purpose, all that good stuff. And and also, I I want to pick uh, Ishmael on this as well, as an ex-investment banker. um, Is there a way to, like, as you think with that hat on, like, the investment banking world is not immune to fintech. Now they haven't definitely they definitely haven't had the disruption in the sense that there's no uh, fintechs like yourselves out there snapping at their heels just yet. But I do wonder if uh, the boutique advisory firms can start to snip off at the profitable bits as um, sort of Mifid two bites as a mere thirty nine has started to bite. You know, is that transaction banking world and also that investment banking world the next big frontier for fintech, or is that some ways off? I, look, I, it's hard to put a timeline onto it, but I think certainly there's kind of there's a lot of value to be generated for users and a sort of profits to be generated as well uh, through digitizing and automating a lot of old school and cumbersome processes. And I think you mentioned boutiques there. I think boutiques will always have a place. You look at any intermediated industries like travel, for example, and uh, a lot of it has since been disintermediated by digital players. But you're always going to have your be- your boutique high end. Uh, sort of luxury travel agents. And and I think in the advisory world, whatever the industry, in banking, let's say, you're going to have that. But I think some of the bigger guys are going to start adopting um, technology. I think fundamentally it's always going to be a a relationship business. But I think they're going to be highly, highly leveraged. And you would hope that the value of those deals is going to be um, increased through technology. So what struck me is, uh, I think both Slack and Zoom, as, and, and Spotify, sorry, recently have gone for a direct listing instead of a formal IPO. Um, there's a lot of companies now sort of going around the M&A advisory route and the IPO advisory route. You know, is that still needed in the same way it was? And as we face a bear market, you know, are there going to be more Deutsche Banks out there that, that yeah. really struggle? But Slack still appointed Morgan Stanley, right, to help them with their pricing. Yeah, they're still going to appoint bankers to help with the process. I think it's just the extent to which they do will 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 sort of change and iterate um, as people see new approaches. Great. So I think I'm going to move us on to the next story. But just before I do, I had a question. What do you think this means for the job market? There's now hundreds, maybe thousands more people coming out of Deutsche Bank and into the job market. Where do they go? And then also, what does that mean for Deutsche Bank the next time it has vacancies? Are people going to trust it? I mean, trust is a difficult thing to get back when it's lost. Um, I think there's a fair amount of press around this. So um, I think Deutsch has got some making up to do in that respect. In terms of the job market, like from our perspective, we're looking to hire another 750 people in the next year. Mm-hmm. And we're, we don't hire um, specific backgrounds. We hire specific people. So if people come in and they fit what we're trying to do, and they're going to fit our quite unstructured way of working sometimes, um, they're welcome. I think for the right personality, working in a fintech could be could be liberating, and, could, and especially if you've got some knowledge that you can really bring. Um, I wonder, though, as, as you know, the rest of you, would, would you ever hire a banker, Simon? I I'd certainly would consider it. I, I think probably one thing that... Um, <laughs> that sounds like a no. <laughs> certainly consider it. No, I, I, I think one thing that um, fintechs or tech companies in general you know, could possibly benefit from is the, is sort of the, the, as you said, the more structured way of working that perhaps um, these people are, are used to. Um, and certainly I've seen the benefit, you know, I've seen that perhaps, you know, we, we've fallen short on, 
on that um, in some areas, and perhaps bringing people in from bigger organisations like Deutsche, Deutsche could um, could help. Could, could be a benefit. What I think is interesting is we've seen banks spend billions and not re- get to parity with the fintechs. And the fintechs are only ever getting faster and faster in their product development. And so to spend billions to deliver what the challenge has had now or two years ago just doesn't make any sense as a business model because it, it, Deutsche becomes that cautionary tale for you can spend billions, but it doesn't mean you're going to succeed. So what's your alternative? What does your portfolio of alternatives need to look like, I think? It's an interesting question. I mean, we could ponder that all day, mm-hmm. but we should move on. Uh, so the next story uh, comes from Finextra, which is Dutch banks told to stop using payments data for personalized marketing. Put that down. Stop doing that. Yeah, absolutely. So Dutch banks have been told to stop using their customers' payment data stop. for the purposes of personalized direct marketing. Uh, last month, ING said it planned to start using transaction data to send its customers more relevant uh, email and text message offers, uh, which drew complaints from privacy advisors um, and the Dutch Data Protection Authority had to write to the Dutch Banking Authority, uh, make it clear that banks are not allowed to simply send their customers personalized offers based on their payment details. Uh, however, the bank insists that it only sends messages if it believes they are relevant to the customers. What do you yeah. make of that? So this one's weird to me because like post Cambridge Analytica, post GDPR, I get that people want to feel in control of their data. They don't want to have their data sold. They want to trust their bank to look after their data. Get it. But actually, my, my hypothesis is people don't mind having targeted ads if they're aware and they're in on the joke. What they really mind is their data being shared, not being in control of their data, that kind of stuff. Having ads targeted at you if I'm getting some value out of it. Because they're it, relevant, that's what it's all about. Right? Yeah, yeah, it's no bad thing. Like, I actually don't mind it. So this one actually... I think that's the problem though, right? Like, relevant is quite subjective. Yeah, fair. But I mean, look, uh, there's, there's others out there doing this now. Yeah, I mean, on, on that point of relevance being subjective, but but from an advertising point of view, if it's if it's not relevant, eventually it do, it doesn't make sense commercially, right? So the same with Facebook targeting your interests. If your bank are targeting, by definition, essentially, it would just become it would become more and more relevant, or it wouldn't be served to you. So I think the risk here, though, is your spending patterns uh, can give away a lot about you. Not in that you bought those things, so you're more likely to buy them. But how many people bought a coffee first thing in the morning in the same place you did at the same time with your card? And how many people then went and got on the transport that you got on at the same time in the same place with your card? Like, if I can see all of your transaction data, I can pretty much suss you out. So I get that, like, that being breached could be hugely scary and and terrifying, so we've got to be careful about it. But using it to target ads is less of an issue than how are you controlling it and managing it. But Google Maps is following us all around anyway, isn't it? Fair. <laughs> Fair. Wait, and, and that is a risk. Um, but I think there's there's also like this fear of the bank data getting out there. I think this is the thing. If I can target ads at you, what else can I do? I'm a bit confused by this one because, uh, you know, I use Instagram a lot. I've deleted Facebook, too old. But uh, I use Instagram a lot. And it, I'll think about something and it sends me an advert the next day. Now, whether I've searched for it or not, um, whatever. But... Um, it's a good thing that the advert is at least something like I want to be interested in to mm-hmm. look at because I'm going to have to look at an advert anyway in between scrolling. I might as well look at something. So you want the relevance. I'm kind of relevant. So I, I don't really get this one. Like, it sounds like there's something else going on as if they haven't ticked the right GDPR box somewhere. 
Like it's, it's, it's as if that's what banks should be doing. Well, and we've got to bear in mind, we're not representative of every nation in Europe here. So as people that live in the fintech bumble in London, we don't feel the same as somebody who might live in the, the Franco-Dutch region or the, you know, the, the Germanic-speaking regions because the, they take privacy you know, and the populations feel about privacy very differently than, than we Pri- might. Privacy so, in Germany is, I think, a very, very different subject to what it is here. Yeah. So, so there is probably something there to be mindful of. But does Instagram work in a different way in Germany? No, and I, I assume it has users well, as well. Know. Yeah, I don't know. You, you would assume so. Yeah, I was going to ask Sushan actually about yeah. this in, in, in terms of using transaction data from an open banking perspective yeah. to, to qualify loans. Yeah. Um, obviously, that, that's something that Chips um, <coughs> Chip started doing, and I, I assume that you've um, you may do similar things. Mm-hmm. Um, you know. If you can give the customer a better price on existing credit, or mm-hmm. if you can give the customer a better mortgage mm-hmm. offer based on that transaction data, that, that's a positive thing for the customer, right? Totally. Why is it any different if you can give the customer a, you know, a better insurance policy because you can see that they're buying bike insurance or, or, or you know, whatever? But it, the issue it, here it, it, was the same thing. that you can be predatory with your pricing as well as you can be helpful with your pricing. So, so could a lender, potentially. Yeah, and well, the classic example is Uber's uh, surge pricing. Right. They price what they think you will pay, not... Not necessarily what the demand is. Yeah, Yeah. so, and that's the fear here is that it's very easy to use these superpowers for good and it's very easy to use them for evil and it's easier to keep the genie back in the bottle than to let it out and let all all hell run loose. And from from a regulator's perspective and consumer protection in mind, do I mind that those consumers aren't getting particularly relevant adverts? No. Do I mind that this risk could happen? Yes. So I I can see where the regulators may be coming from on this, but it's going to be a tightrope and it's hard to to manage for culture and, and appropriate use of data. It's really hard to see how are you doing that without getting into proprietary stuff. Well, it's stifling the user's experience, ultimately. If we're all striving towards giving them better contextual information, then, then holding that back or not allowing them to act on that information is, is the problem. Mm-hmm. Can we um, go... Sorry. Can we go back a second? Because I have used Uber for many years and I didn't know that about surcharge pricing. You thought it was just busy all the time. I just thought busy. everyone was out when I was out. Yeah. <laughs> nope. the, problem, nope. the problem is you're still going to keep using Uber. Well, Bolt's here now. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. I tried that. I couldn't, I couldn't get one. No? No. I think they've been here for a week or something. Captain. I thought it was just the raining surcharge. I mean, I always accept it. I've never once turned it down and thought, I'm going to get the night bus. It's 2.2, <laughs> I'll get the bus. So it's working then? Well, yeah, it works on me, but I'm an easy sell. <laughs> but, but that's kind of the point, isn't it? Um, that, that maybe if your job is consumer protection and somebody can con the consumer into paying more than they absolutely need to based on their cost model, uh, based on data, then you would want to protect the consumer from that. So the, there's a difficult tightrope here. Is, you know, data is a superpower you can very easily use it for good but what can be used for good doesn't always mean it doesn't get used for bad very wise and uh, british airways <laughs> british airways found that that to their cost this week when they were given so far the the biggest fine for a gdpr breach since the law's been in place of 183 million um and in perspective oh. cambridge analytica got a 500,000 pound fine Damn, so yeah, yeah. The, the authorities are not messing around when How it comes to How many companies are on that list now? And it's just all big brand corporates, broadly? Don't I don't know, you just read the headlines, The companies right? that have been fined? Yeah. I, I mean, I'm pretty sure every single company that I 
didn't opt into us still emailing this. <laughs> exactly, right? Oh, those, sure two, those two months were painful, weren't they? Well, yeah, and the, the sort of post-GDPR utopia where no one was ever going to send me a spam email ever again didn't happen. No. No, so people just created more effective opt-in and used design to capture my opt-in. And now whenever mm. I load a website, I've got mm. six pop-ups making me accept things. Before, <laughs> before, before you even, even get to the stuff. It's like, yeah. do you accept cookies? Yes. <laughs> do you accept GDPR? Yes. <laughs> just, I just want to see... Well, if I don't, I can't read anything on the site. <laughs> oh, now you're getting the... Can you turn off your ad blocker, please? No. Go away. I'm going to stop using Chrome and start using Mozilla for everything. <laughs> said nobody. <Yeah. laughs> Uh, okay, so for, uh, moving on from one case of potential malpractice to another. Uh, this story comes from the BBC. It is um, a government-owned bank forging signatures, in quotation marks, in repossession cases. Um, so this is slightly complicated, uh, but representatives of a government-owned bank are suspected of forging signatures on court documents in repossession cases, which is no small accusation. Uh, the allegations relate to UK assets resolution and loans from Northern Rock, Bradford and Bingley, Mortgage Express and Lloyds Banking Group, uh, who obviously all strongly deny these claims. Um, the signatures of bank officials and legal representatives are found on documents such as statements of truth and witness statements submitted to the courts as part of repossession proceedings. However, a handwriting expert in forgery cases says he's seen dozens of examples and considers it highly likely that different people have been signing under the same name and says that there is enough evidence to suggest this may not be a one-off but a systematic practice. The fact that this is repossession cases is really, really saddening and maddening. Uh, I guess uh, we have seen this in the US as well. Banks have actually been fined up to $25 billion and had to compensate millions of people for illegal repossessions. Uh, Post-financial crisis, again, there was a lot of human suffering that happened here. And, and this is uh, frankly astonishing. But the, it sort of goes to the nature of signatures being some sort of risk preventative yeah. measure. It's like, <laughs> wait, so you're going to take some ink and scroll it on a paper yeah. and that means that there's means no fraud. Yes. Yeah. And, and, and inside of uh, a lot of incumbents, you still get this thing of like, oh, you want, no, that digital newfangled thing could possibly be hacked. What you need is a wet signature. And it's like, why? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's crazy as well that even in the piece, they've got like a handwriting expert to come in. Mm. You just yeah. think, you know, like clearly that's kind of a profession that could be used to sort of qualify something like this as well as all of the all of the data but it seems incredibly arbitrary and mm. um like open to human error it's an old-fashioned analysis for an old-fashioned practice yeah big time so what, never... are, what are the implications if this is true um and also many of the organizations that are accused no longer exist like northern rock bradford and bingley etc what happens if they're proven to have been that's the problem, this. right? It's kind of like it's, it's, it's government owned. They've got the repossessions. You've got potentially billions of fines. Mm -hmm. It's. Does the government fine itself? <laughs> <laughs> this would be like that thing that we had on as an and finally story a while ago where you could spend £200 to buy something off Amazon that stopped you doing stupid things, which is quite ironic because it was like buying something that off of Amazon would yeah. be the thing you'd set it up to stop you doing but uh, this it's like really circular so uh, this one uh, yeah it's a, it's a weird one but it's a hard one uh, and, and the fact that it's been a systemic practice suggests you want to see some sort of investigation into it and, and hopefully uh, right gets made for the people who suffered in this one um, but you, you 
in Trussell and, and your own businesses, you deal with processes that you've just built. Is there a way to get around signatures? I mean, especially with like crowdfunding, that's a very uh, sort of investing in something is a very paper-based process. How, how have you dealt with some of that stuff? Yeah, I mean, broadly, crowdfunding is brought around the, the transaction of equity investment and optimized as much of it as possible to drive efficiencies at scale. Um, specifically for, for identity, we use a third-party plugin on Fido, um, which, you know, does the job, right? And, and, and does, it, does exactly what it says on the tin. And, and basically, we're using experts in their fields to get the best out of the customer experience. What's really interesting is you see this across a lot of fintechs that they're more like schools of fish than one big whale. There's there's like there's a little patchwork of specialists mm. that that make up the service that's offered to the customer mm. whereas the banks sort of almost like if they were building a car it's like they've got the rubber plant and the steel yeah, plant they do, and, and they they build everything themselves and then these things are all of these production lines are 40 50 years old and they're supporting 2 3 million customers 5 million customers 10 million customers so changing that feels really hard but could you not start smaller somewhere else and build your own internal fintechs or something and because you guys can build entire businesses in the time that spending billions and trying to transform can't actually get done i mean mortgages is a not dissimilar market as well where there's so much paper there and as an as a broker you've kind of in the middle of a lot of that Totally. I mean, you know, one of the things that we're trying to do is is sort of digitize and automate as much of that end-to-end process as possible mm-hmm. to kind of deliver that speed and certainty to that customer experience where it's absent. Um, but you've got plenty of lenders that will, of course, have their own processes, many of whom will still require wet signatures yeah. and will require paperwork. So you can you can kind of, you know, you could go on our website, you could pull out your phone, you could finish the form in around 10 minutes. But in the case where the lender that we recommend requires you to fill out a paper form, you still need to fill out that paper form. That's so daft, isn't it? Like, it would be awesome, like, shout out if you're listening, friendly neighbourhood regulator, if we could get some kind of statement that says on the back of this, maybe wet signatures aren't this cure-all for big banks, and actually they're a really bad thing, Um, and that relying on paper is not necessarily inclusive for people with poor mental health or accessibility either. Yeah, and I have to say on that, actually, and I'll point this at you, Jonathan, that the, the um, EIS certificates that Chip had to fill out after funding on Crowdcube, there was, it was several thousand that I had to sign personally. Oh, really? What, yeah. for each individual Each investor? individual EIS uh, certificate. It's HMRC, so I'm, I'm, I'm being being a bit uh, unfair, but had to sign each one individually. Did you feel yeah. like a celebrity at a book signing? We literally lined them, up, <laughs> lined them up in the office. We had like envelopes and things. Like, bang, people bang, that bang, 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 bang. No, I mean, that is fully bonkers. And yeah, it's it obviously something... ridiculous, yeah. It is obviously something that we're, that we're working with. No, 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 I'm, 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 I'm being it, unfair, but yeah, it, it's HMRC. They're yeah, just yeah. living but, but in a different universe. But that's the thing, it's, it's, it's often like you can fix the processes you're in control of, but somebody else might still insist on this wet signature, which is no more secure. It's actually arguably far less secure. So who's benefiting from this existing? Well, how do we change it? Well, that brings us to our next story. So You're just to jump in here, thank you for that. Uh, so for this one, um, we are looking across the pond as fintechs are starting to change the remittance process. So this story comes from the FT. Uh, Bezos-backed Remitly raises $135 million for expansion in remittances. So a fintech firm specialised in remittances backed by the founder of Amazon has raised $135 million uh, to a valuation of nearly $1 billion in the same week as Facebook launched Libra, uh, which we'll come to shortly. So Seattle-based 
Chase remitly processes around 6 billion of payments annually and focuses on the remittances of immigrants' homes to their friends and relatives who can receive money in cash on their phone and as well as in their bank accounts. However, Facebook said remittances were a core focus of the Libra project, uh, promising that its digital currency would make it easier for the unbanked to send and receive money across borders. Uh, Remitly's eight-year-old business does this too. Um, However, their co-founder said that while Facebook's plans were announced as they were closing the deal, it wasn't a factor in securing the investment. Simon. (laughs) (laughs) So Facebook Libra, if it does happen, will not happen next year. Um, they, they've said they're going to launch it next year, but Mark Carney um, said, you know, this is this is not something that can be done. Sort of half half a job is not enough. Like we and uh, Jerome Powell, uh, the chairman of the Federal Reserve, has said, you know, this there's some serious material, both uh, regulatory anti-money laundering concerns with how Libra looks currently, and there are some serious uh, concerns with how uh, the 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 economics of Libra would work. So I don't expect see Libra being in the market anytime soon. That doesn't mean Libra is not interesting, super interesting, but not next year. Um, but I remember uh, back in sort of 2009, everybody going, mobile payments, mobile payments going to be huge. Oh my God, mobile payments. And it's like, no, like maybe contactless, then mobile payments. Here in 2019, Apple pays a thing, Android pays a thing, mobile payments are a thing. So people overstate the pace of change and understate the impact. So I'm not playing down Libra. I'm just saying not yet. Uh, but remittances generally, I mean, TransferWise um, does a lot in remittances, World Remit. Uh, I don't think it's the next new big sector at all. I think it's been a big sector for quite some time. And remittances has been a growing market as we've seen increasing migrant populations sending money home as, as part of the way in which economies are developing and, and people are finding work in other countries and contributing to, to their new homes. However, if people do want to know more about your thoughts on Libra... Uh, they can uh, they can definitely check a, check out um, Blockchain Insider available on iTunes now or your favorite podcast client episode one hundred one or one hundred two and your series of blogs and my series of blogs. Thank you, producer Laura, for producing me. <laughs> it's like it's my job. Uh, anyone else got any thoughts on this one? Well, remittances isn't a new thing. Certainly, um, improving it is a relatively new thing. So, bringing the price down, bringing the availability down improving speed uh, and there's lots and lots of different choice now in, for consumers and small businesses to move money around the world in different ways um, certainly helping people that can't get a bank account uh, I think is what Remitly does very well it's what Western Union has done historically very well um, we're, we're focused digitally is that the right word? Digitally, sound it out. Um, uh, <laughs> sound it out, man. Sound, sound it out. out. <laughs> uh, bank transfer to bank transfer. So we haven't solved this yet. Um, but uh, we want to um, be available to everyone everywhere at some point. So uh, it's something for the future for sure. And I think businesses like Remitly, like TransferWise, if Libra did become a thing, would actually not be... Um, it would just become another payments rail for you guys, right? It would be just become another way. You've still got to build sort of user bases and connect them on both sides and, and provide them with services and manage the risk. Yeah, and we, we look at this, uh, and if it improves our coverage or our price or our speed, then we, we would potentially be open to things. Um, my personal view on cryptocurrencies is that their anonymity, I'm going to have to sound that one out as well. Um, the unanimity. Uh, I've only had one beer, I promise. Uh, 
makes it difficult because KYC and AML and all the screening processes that are the the only way that international payments works goes away with crypto. So, no, no, because no, you've still got a wallet, right? So uh, if if I was to say that, uh, like, let's say I go to Coinbase, I go to Coinbase, they have to fully KYC me before I can um, move any material amount of money in or out of Coinbase. So you regulate the endpoint. The fact that the network is public probably means that, like, I, we can go both look at the Bitcoin network right now and see the transactions coming through. You probably don't want your name on those transactions because there, there goes your privacy and the Dutch regulators would hate it. So the, it's actually a privacy feature, not a bug, that the Bitcoin network doesn't carry identities and that cryptos like Libra wouldn't carry identities. You can still KYC the wallet. Um, you can still KYC the endpoint. Okay. Mm-hmm. I'm still not sure it solves for um, the regulators. Yeah, it does. Um, the the FCA have said as much. Um, they they regulate. Um, so Coinbase has a license from the FCA as an e money issuer. Um, there's there's a number of other organisations. I think Circle has a license as an e money issuer. So it's it's it just looks like a money service business from from a regulatory standpoint. Um, but the remittances market isn't solved for by having a cryptocurrency. It's solved for by understanding the problems that people trying to remit have and bringing down the cost of sending money home. I think that's yes. the key. Awesome. And then on that note, we're going to take a quick break while you hear from our sponsors, and we'll be back very shortly. This deal sets apart. This economy okay, is... We need to get down to business. Yeah. We need to get yeah, the pressure is beginning. Business investment. Jobs. The more you hear about Brexit, the less clear it all becomes. When everyone else is shouting, listen. For the clarity behind the headlines, subscribe to the Financial Times. Visit ft.com. Today, customers are demanding greater value from financial services. They expect more agility, innovation and security than ever before. Most financial institutions are held back by the shackles of closed legacy systems that limit transparency, block innovation and ignore customers' demands. Finastra has a bold vision to unlock the potential of people and business. They've created a platform for open innovation in the world of financial services with FusionFabric.cloud. Their solutions span retail, transaction lending, and treasury and capital markets on-premise and in the cloud. Start your transformation journey today with Finastra. Welcome back to Fintech Insider from 11FS. By the way, we're hiring. Um, so check out 11fs.com <laughs> for... Don't laugh. I just like the plugs. Uh, <laughs> we are. We are actually hiring. It, it, it's also true. Um, 11fs.com forward slash careers to find your dream job. Uh, jobs in consulting, product, design, and tech. But uh, if none of that sounds like you, do click the button that says nothing tickles my fancy because we get about 30% of our recruits through that. Uh, if you're slightly strange, you love doing interesting things, then we want to hear from you. 11fs.com forward slash careers. All right, let's get back on with the show. Uh, and we're going to start the second half with a little bit of good news. Um, so this story comes from yourmoney.com, which says that fintech is the new normal, with 55% of co- consumers are now regular users. Uh, so a survey by the financial advice organization Devere Group found that 55% of people from the UK, Europe, Asia, Africa, Latin America, and Australasia, 
so basically the whole globe, uh, regularly <laughs> use financial <laughs> technology to access and manage their money. Um, there are some penguins in the Antarctic that yeah, are just not down few. with fintech. Yeah, it's not normal for them. Dumb penguins. I mean, a couple of stats here. So 67% of those polled use fintech apps to send remittances and money transfers. 46% use financial technology vehicles to track investments or accounts. And 28% use them for storing and managing cryptocurrencies. Um, I mean, I... I don't know if any of these uh, stats are a particular surprise to anyone or if 55% is a high enough percentage to claim a new normal. What do you guys think? What does normal mean? Yeah, and what does financial technology yeah. mean, yeah. right? Because is it is if this is 55% of the UK economy, UK consumers regularly use a challenger fintech app that is not from an incumbent that hasn't been around for more than 10 years, that is digital and mobile only, that would be like, woohoo! Let's like let's like yay up for the consumer. Let's go digital. So long as people feel like that they're, they're not losing out on on the human touch. But this isn't that. This is people are using apps to do stuff. That might not mean that they're not using other stuff, right? So the fact that Western Union now has an app and that hundreds of years old businesses are doing this. Let's just be careful with the definitions. That said, even if you're using an incumbent app or you're yeah. using something else, it's probably a good thing if, if it's improving people's lives. We've seen things like uh, M-Pesa, mobile money, uh, you know, really transform uh, outcomes for people in some of the poorest parts of the world. It kind of means that 45% of the rest are still using a checkbook. I mean, <laughs> Or a branch, I guess. I mean, <laughs> but yeah. <laughs> I think that's still a really high number, frankly. The... The fact, it's, it's, it, the, 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 the fact that, you know, it's, it's a pretty integral part of all onboarding for most banks, whether challenger or incumbent now. It, it seems is crazy here, that though, still... whereas that stat comes from basically the entire globe put together. From so with that in mind, people. it's probably not that surprising. <laughs> yeah, it's, I guess it's really hard to extract any insights from this. <laughs> That's like the whole world and, and kind of lack of definition. But I think, I think your point, Simon, is really, is really relevant that... Um, what does fintech mean and does it really matter what it means? Mm. Uh, like ultimately, if it's uh, a Lloyd's app versus a Monzo app mm. that's delivering the same functionality and benefits to users, um, who cares? The fact if, that people the are doing things wins, in a better way, wins. yeah, that, that's what's important. Yeah, um, I think but I, 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 would, I would assume that for something like this as well, it's kind of just highlighting the adoption curve uh, from consumers towards digital services within financial uh, with, towards digital within financial services. So where previously for, let's say, more transactional and lower value items like transport, people, there would have been a, a, a greater and quicker take up in financial services. It's always going to be a bit lagging because it's it's sensitive, right? Um, so I think this probably is is following that curve that people are just using their mobile to do more. I think that's probably fair enough. And, and there's a quote here from the DeVere CEO that says, this trend is only set to grow as digital natives become ever more dominant in the workforce. So, yeah, to your point, it's just people doing more with, with digital and that's now becoming more relevant in how they're managing their money. Um, cool. Well, I think we put that one to bed. So <laughs> next up, um, N26 to launch their mobile banking in the US today, as we are recording right now. Mm. So N26 is due to announce uh, its launch of its banking app today. Uh, if you're listening on Monday, that was Thursday. Um, in, a, in a stage rollout, 10,000 customers from their wait list will be invited to sign up and have full access to their product. Uh, N26 have partnered with Axos Bank to offer a checking account and a Visa debit card. And you can sign up from your phone in just five minutes 
with no maintenance fees or balances required. Um, their US CEO has said, we uh, will eliminate the frustration of visiting branches, waiting on the phone and paying fees for basic services that should already be included. Um, what do you guys think of this one? So in a story that is bound to trigger a whole bunch of fintech influencers, another European challenger is going to the uh, US um, and everybody will try and make it a versus story. But again, another challenger going to the US makes it better for the US consumer, to, to my mind, and I hope they do interesting things. N26 has been pretty good at expanding throughout Europe, um, not without its challenges. As I mentioned Bar earlier, Barfin has, has mentioned a few things. The thing that stuck out to me is that uh, when Monzo are entering, they're working with Saxo Bank, Looks like um, N26 are partnering with Axos Bank. Uh, there's always another partner bank sort of behind the scenes as they're bootstrapping into the US market. That does appear to be uh, be a trend. Um, and of course, uh, Peter Thiel um, is one, you know, the former PayPal guy and uh, now uh, author of Zero to One and many, many more investments, uh, is is kind of behind N26. So they're... Um, they're in an interesting space. They've got some impressive backers. Let's let's see what they can do. Uh, but they're not uh, they're not alone. You know, you've got homegrown fintech such as Chime and many others there that are that are really making waves in their own. It's, it's going to be super interesting to watch the U.S. market in the next couple of years. And this point about they've got a uh, hundred thousand customers on the U.S. wait list. How many of those will they convert? That's going to be the real key for me. Like, and how long they've been on that wait list? Yeah. What do you guys think? Can they crack America? Well, I guess all of the challenges from, from Europe need to grow into their valuations, right? This mm -hmm. is an inevitability that they were all going to enter the US. Um, we were talking about customer acquisition before, before the show. And, you know, broadly, some of the facts around the referral rates and signups, there's still a majority of these businesses signups. Mm -hmm. um, 80% on Monzo, you, you said transfer-wise, you're, you're, you're flowing with 70% on Word referrals. Word of mouth, yeah. yeah. So I yeah, guess like, that's a quick take a moment for that, like yeah. 70%, 80% <laughs> word of mouth. Like if you were to go to an incumbent and ask them what's their word of mouth, you, you're looking at between 2 and 3%. Crazy. Uh, so the, I didn't even think they'd know. Well, yeah, it's probably not measured. Now, granted, they're also, they've got millions of customers, so they're kind of fine, um, and they can, they can ship products, and they've got decent balance sheets, and that's, that's not to be, be unplayed. Is it a stupid question to ask how you measure word of mouth? Uh, I think, well, you're going to put me on the spot question. here because marketing is not my strong point, but um, we certainly survey customers, but we also know what our marketing spend is. So therefore, you know what the difference is. And you know what your costs are, and uh, yes. you can figure it out. Yes. Yeah, that's it. NPS as well, right? And NPS, yeah. So I guess between all of those, you, what you see is this consistent pattern of community-driven customer acquisition to drive down the cost of acquisition. But the only way that works is if the product is really, 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 really good yes. and solves a direct yeah. problem for customers. Well, I was going to say, I think it will be really interesting to see how nuanced that is in the UK in particular and sort of Europe to an extent. So mm. that community-driven approach to customer acquisition and the particular tactics that have been used let's say in the UK um, how well will that translate for the likes of Monzo to the US yeah. um, I think the, the exciting thing I guess all of us sort of around the table representing fintech is that that's kind of one of the key areas in tech in startups where Europe is kind of the dominant players mm -hmm. globally and, and, and do have that sort of competitive advantage so to see them go into the US 
and and gain the kind of the, the PR and the media exposure the already. The US hasn't done bad on fintech. Stripe, Square, you know, there are some really... I guess, I guess the consumer, consumer, consumer retail yeah. banking, it's behind. Yeah, I'm not sure that community element translates, especially across all different states. I guess that's, yeah, that's the question mark. Yeah. Well, yeah, the US has so many countries in one, but then so is Europe. Um, yeah. it's, well, it's not one country, but you know, there are so many different markets and so many different consumer attitudes, and N26 has been able to expand into many of those. So, yeah. you know, does that give them an advantage over the likes of a Monzo pack? But I wonder, do, do we know what features Monzo and, and N26 are launching in the US with? Mm. Does, you know, does one of them have significantly better feature set? I don't think that's been declared in any of the press that I've seen. So it's going to be interesting. Probably probably a lot to do with that, right, at the beginning. What do they actually have? Well, and are they solving for that first community's biggest pain point and problem? Because you don't have to be feature-rich, you just have to be lovable, right? You have to have something that's that's a value to the customer. Yeah. I wonder. I have no idea, but... Yeah, is it just a prepaid debit card? I, I, I don't know. I, I, I guess another another thing that's interesting to see how it plays out is is how fundamental the US market is to both these two brands. Let's just take N26 and Monzo. They've all been very vocal about the amount of users that they've been acquiring in the mm. UK and Europe. And to see how that plays out in the US, you know, they're getting very broad with their terms, like 100,000 waiting list, 1,000 this, 1,000 that. Mm. And, it's um, it's going to be interesting to see, I guess. Over well, next I mean, they've called their shot. They can that. they back it up? Um, exactly. I, I think that's yeah. the thing. This is this is they've definitely put their neck out there. If if they don't achieve it, you could rightly say in two years, well, you had a go. Um, that's going to be a real asset test. Yeah, this press release from from N twenty six is very very ambitious. The CEO is quoted as saying, uh, "We want to change banking globally and reach more than fifty million customers in the coming years." Uh, we know that million pe- uh, millions of people around the world and particularly in the US are still paying hidden and exorbitant fees and are frustrated by poor banking experiences. So they're really kind of like nailing their colours there. They're going after the US and, yeah. and they want this 50 million customer the no target. fees, basically, that's it, right? Yeah. And we have seen, um, you know, uh, Finn by Chase was was pulled back, but there were rumours JP Morgan's looking at doing another another Challenger Bank sort of play. Um, we've also seen Marcus by Goldman. Uh, I don't think we've seen the last of big banks trying to do their own fintechs plays. Uh, and have they learned the lesson of the UK market where maybe uh, just copying features doesn't always get you parity and doesn't always keep your customers? Maybe it does though, because I mean, you know, the, the incumbent banks would argue, well, you know, they're still getting most of the salaries. You know, the, there's just somebody just created a new type of financial product and that was we we didn't like the survey that we discussed previously about the rise of fintech and the 55 percent adoption but copying what's already there and just making it digital is not what fintech's about it's about improving what's already there and raising the bar for the incumbents and if they can keep up they keep up and if they can't they can't so um it, yeah it's going to be interesting over the next six months. I mean, we, we launched our card in the US two weeks ago. We, we don't claim it to be a bank account. It's more of a... Um, it's the borderless account, isn't it? It's the, it's the borderless account, yes. So for people that um, work and travel and uh, move around abroad. Great. So we will be keeping an eye on that one for sure. And uh, we are staying with the US for the next story. Uh, so this comes from the American banker. Another state creates tech sandbox as federal agencies tread warily. Uh, so the Beehive State, otherwise known as Utah, is launching an effort to spark innovation in the fintech space. Uh, so the Utah Department of Commerce announced the start of the nation's second regulatory sandbox, 
based on legislation passed by Utah lawmakers. Uh, so the catchily named HB 378 permits... <laughs> was that an aeroplane that went missing? It sounds, sounds like, like it, doesn't it? Yeah, permits financial technology companies <laughs> to apply for a special exemption when setting up a business. Um Etc. Etc. It's a sandbox. Um, more or less, the story goes on to explain what a sandbox is for the rest of America, who are probably less familiar. Um, the state government suggested that companies that may benefit from this new program could include peer-to-peer lending, credit extending services, money transmission, and certain blockchain or cryptocurrency products. Uh, and Utah joins Arizona in the U.S. as the only other state to have a sandbox. What yeah, Arizona think? was out in front by quite some way. You know, it was, it was about eighteen months ago, maybe a year ago, that they, they got theirs in. Um, we've also seen what some prompted of the, that. From that? Ar- what prompted it from Arizona? Uh, I'm not sure. There was there was a. I think there was somebody in the legislature that was really passionate about it, and a bit like how Delaware has become the state in which you incorporate, and they've they've made a business out of being you know, that thing. state. Yeah, it's their thing. Uh, then uh, Arizona was trying to do that with fintech. They saw the fintech wave coming and, and trying to trying to get out in front of it. So uh, it's about attracting business to your market and to your economy, and and you know, growing the economy of your region. So it, it's eminently sensible as a policy, I, I suspect. Um, but it's interesting how we're seeing this state-by-state sort of play out, Uh, whilst also some of the federal agencies are not calling it a sandbox but doing their own thing. The OCC has theirs, the SEC has one, the CFTC has their lab. Uh, They just don't want to call it a sandbox for some reason. That's a really political... Is that because they got abuse when they did call it a sandbox? Like that that lady in NYC that said sandboxes are just for children. Yeah. (laughs) It's a, it's a weird language point uh, that our American cousins have there, but um, I guess. Um, but we're also seeing this globally as well. We've seen uh, Monetary Authority of Singapore has a sandbox. Uh, the HKMA has one. Australia has one. Uh, the uh, Abu Dhabi Global Markets launching its sandbox, and and so there's a real wave of like these fintech sandboxes as a benevolent honeypot of this way of inviting fintechs in, giving them a load of benefits as a way of getting closer to what they're doing, understanding what they're doing, in the hope of providing preventing risks as they grow and they scale. But also as like creating competition seems to be the thing that a lot of the regulators are really pushing for, having seen the UK probably take a bit of a lead on that, but now doing it in their own way. Is it significant that this is being driven by the slightly smaller states rather than what you might consider the more obvious places like New York and San Francisco? Is there it's, anything in it's that? It's strange. It's strange because I think it's, you know, it's not that the New York and San Francisco are just... Um, established cities in every sense of the world. They're, they're also those that are kind of pioneers from a technology perspective. And so I think when you've got a region or any kind of jurisdiction where the regulator is being quite collaborative with those looking to test new things, um, it's a positive sign and it's kind of, it, it, it's a signal to say, yes, we accept innovation. We're willing to lean into what you're doing and support that and sort of stay close to you to offer that guidance. And so I do think that it's it's slightly strange that it hasn't happened in, in other regions before places like Utah and Arizona, and which, I mean, the fintech scene might be buzzing over there. But mm, <laughs> I was going to ask, does anyone know anything about the fintech scene in, in Utah? Uh, or is it just no. trying to encourage a fintech scene? By I don't the way? know yeah, anything about Utah. I, I imagine it's an element of that. But you've got to bear in mind, the, so the, US, the US banking market is very different to the UK. It's not nearly as concentrated. There's over 5,000 yeah. banks. Um, they are spread geographically, um, not only by head offices, but by where their other offices are. So you can have a fintech center. You could have a tech center that's nowhere near your head office. 
uh, you know, sort of um, Dallas and Austin, Texas, for instance, have an awful lot of technology from from the banks, and that's why they've got a, a tech scene sort of that grows around it. Uh, so, you, and you would see Charlotte, North Carolina, has a real banking hub. There's a lots of little different banking hubs around the world. Georgia is a payments hub. Because of this, you see that actually maybe it makes more sense that they would look to attract it. They probably have some banks in their region that they're looking to build off the back of and then sort of grow from there. Just the nature and the dynamic of that market is so very different to how concentrated it is in the the UK or, or Australia, for instance. So um, we've got to, but the, th- the macro trend here is the US market is really, really heating up for consumer fintech, not just with N26, but now with sandboxes, with Monzo, with TransferWise, with Chime and the homegrown fintechs, who knows how it's going to play out. But if, if I'm in an incumbent, I'm really thinking, what do I do? And if I'm in a challenger, it's going to be really interesting to figure out how do you actually crack this one? Because I think it is a lot harder than it is in the, in the UK for, for that reason. Any final thoughts on this one? No, we will move on to our, and finally, which in this case uh, is a story from Finextra. 7-Eleven shuts down its mobile payments app following a ludicrous security breach. Finextra's words, not mine. Um, 7-Eleven has suspended its mobile payment app in Japan after an appalling security lapse led to the loss of $530,000 from 900 accounts within one day of its launch. Mm. So... um, the Seven Pay app uh, was inspired by the Japanese government's goal of raising cashless payments levels to 40%, uh, which you could use the app to pay for goods and services in store by scanning the barcode and debiting uh, the funds from the user's card stored in the app. However, and this is where it gets slightly complicated, but go with me on this, uh, the app had a, new, had a password reset function that enabled anyone to request the posting of a new password to a different email address to the one that oh. was used to set up the account. <laughs> to achieve this, thieves needed to just enter the genuine 7Pay user's email address, date of birth, and phone number. However... If the user didn't enter their date of birth, it would default to the 1st of January 2019, so it could easily be overridden. Um, and as customers flocked to Twitter to complain about money being drained from their bank accounts, 7-Eleven was forced into a humiliating shutdown and has promised to refund all customers who lost money. They should have tested it in Arizona's sandbox. They really Absolutely. should. <laughs> Get, well, or Utah's for that. Or Utah's. Utah. Or any sandbox. Yeah, or, or tested it. Yes. Uh, <laughs> uh, no, this is the important... Like, um, so for those of you that have seen the movie Catch Me If You Can, you'll know Frank Ag- Abagnale Jr. Um, so he actually was quoted uh, a couple of days ago saying, like, you're going to have these problems until passwords go away fully. Like passwords themselves are uh, a massive security breach waiting to happen because email compromise and takeover can can happen. Um, but then sort of this one, this one's just so basic that actually I, I could just go, like, I'm going to try and log in with this email address. Oh, I'm just going to go reset the password on this account and I'm going to send it to my email address. Like it, it's it's shockingly bad. Um, but, you know, do we think that security needs to change as a result? Do we? Do you think that's likely to happen anytime soon? Or you know what they needed? A wet signature. That would have solved it. <laughs> that, that, it wouldn't have really solved your cashless payments, though. There's that. Interesting. But maybe 7-Eleven isn't the place to start with trying to to go with an app. I mean, I get maybe raising cashless payments in a 7-Eleven, which gets used all the time. But yeah. like, I don't know, contactless cards, anyone? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Why do you need a 7-Eleven? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> You've got to think 
cards are an amazing technology. Like mm-hmm. they're they're quite they're cheap to produce compared to a mobile phone or something like that. They they survive pretty well if you get them wet. They you can stand on the thing and it probably still works. Uh, and you just tap the thing and it pays and on you go. And it's a second factor of authentication that's really hard to hack, like mm. near impossible. Like cards are pretty great. Like there's a reason I think they've stuck around. Uh, let's uh, yeah, I agree with that. Well, we learned something today. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I quite like yeah, cards. You're right. <laughs> go on cards. They're pretty good. They've been around for ages as well. Yeah, yeah. go on cards. Like, yeah. take that cash in your face. Wow, okay. So, so on that note, uh, that wraps up this week's news show. <laughs> in favour of cards, who knew? Uh, so thank you so much to all of our guests. Where can people find out more about you? Uh, starting with you, Jonathan. Yeah, on LinkedIn, Jonathan Keeling. Great, thank you. Alistair? LinkedIn, Alistair Thompson, um, A-L-A, because I have Scottish grandparents. <laughs> I met someone called Alistair with the same spelling at Glastonbury last week, and that's the first person in my life that has, I've ever met with the same spelling. That's a little boring fact for you to finish this Learned two things today. But a nice little plug that you went to Glastonbury. <laughs> Me too, it's fine. Oh, <laughs> wonderful. We'll talk afterwards. Uh, uh, yeah, on LinkedIn or, or Twitter, it's just Ishan underscore Trussell. And worth clarifying, I didn't name my company after my last name. Including my name's not Simon Chip, but that's it. So, um, uh, yeah, LinkedIn, uh, Simon Raven, but far more interesting than, than, than me is um, go to the App Store, download Chip, and start saving. Fantastic. Um, Simon Taylor. Uh, you can find me on Blockchain Insider on your favourite podcast app. Um, also, uh, do do drop me an email, simon at 11fs.com. Um, I'm curious to talk, you know, what do you think about Libra? Um, and also, uh, what have you got going on internally in your banks that we should know about? Like, let's get some, some folks on the show. Um, we, we're always after new guests. Absolutely. And so on that note, you can find me uh, at podcast at 11fs.com. Or podcast, Laura. nice to meet you. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> or Laura Watkins on LinkedIn. Um, and so what do you think of today's stories? Please let us know on Twitter at Fintech Insiders or email podcast at 11fs.com. Uh, and don't forget, if you love the show, be sure to leave us a review. Uh, thanks to all those that have done already. We love reading them, uh, especially David. Um, so or you can also find us on Twitter, Instagram, YouTube and Periscope for more content including fintech insider on air and uh, home screen so on that note thank you very much for listening goodbye